Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. Uh, I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's back from vacation. Yep. Well rested. Yeah. Heard yeah. you hurt yourself water skiing. Yeah, my knee. What do you attribute that to? Old. <laughs> Just being old? Yeah. No. Being, being lousy at water skiing? Well, but I'm proud that you got out there and, and, and attempted it. Thank you. Uh, and so uh, being proud, I should also say I'm proud of our listeners and our Facebook fans and everybody who reached out to me about the Steve yeah. story. Uh, I was out and about, and it touched a lot of people. And uh, I, I mean, I'm so grateful and blessed that people allow us to do this and will reach out and, and share their thoughts and share their stories. I mean, uh, there was, our, our feed was filled with people and their dogs and right. talking about their stories. And, you know, I never really thought of how much a support animal could help in addiction and recovery. Oh, yeah. We, um, I'm, I write letters to allow people to have emotional support animals uh, mm-hmm. quite regularly because – I know it's a big deal. It it does make a big difference, and we have the that unconditional love with a with a pet, like a dog or. And a they cat. are the true definition mm-hmm. of unconditional love. Now, this is probably not going to be a popular joke, but this was a joke I heard as a kid. Nice. And they go, "Do you want to know the definition of unconditional love?" Yes, I do. Here's how you decide it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you put your wife and your dog <laughs> both in a trunk. Yeah. Only one's going to be happy when you open it. <laughs> that is true. And it's going to be the dog. I think maybe that's why we're both divorced. <laughs> maybe so. I don't know. Could but, be. but I mean, but that is, I mean, my dog, Steve, was unconditional. Yeah. I mean, he never wavered. And, and even when I, and I'm not happy to say this, but wasn't always there. And he wasn't always top of mind. He was always there with a smile, a lick, and just to be like, hey, dad, what's happening? They're always there for you. Always. So, so thank you very much for the uh, loving, uh, outpouring support yeah. that you guys provided me, and I and I, I can never thank you enough. Uh, we're going to shift gears here for a second, and this is where everybody in the room can can play along. Okay. Yeah. Do you get a haircut? No, I just wet my hair and tucked it behind my ears. Oh, okay. Uh, here's the deal: How many times do you think I've been knocked out in my life? Like knocked out cold. Knocked out cold. Now that does not happen as much as people think because in movies it happens all the time. Yeah. I'm going to say once. So Matt says once. Producer Josh says seven. I'm going ten. Ten. Wow. You don't even know me when you shot high. So the truth is I've been knocked out twice in my life. Okay. And both times I was extremely intoxicated. Mm Mm-hmm. And one of those times. Were these from fights? Like somebody punched you? Yeah, punched. Um, and so one of those times happened <laughs> the year was 1991. Yeah. Steve Miller band was coming to park city. Good times. Oh, I love Steve Miller. Band. Me too. And so, uh, me and a bunch of guys got in the car, went up to Steve Miller band and did what, you know, high school kids did. Well, yeah. what I did anyways, respectfully waited in line and then quietly listened to the music, pounded cheap beer in the parking lot or that, yeah. you know, and then went into the concert and was rocking out, uh, to Abracadabra mm. and jungle love. That is the worst Steve Miller band song, but it's the first one out of your mouth. Yeah. Look at Abra, Abracadabra. I want to reach out and grab you. So we were in there jamming to Steve Miller band and, uh, as the weather often does in Utah, yeah, changed on us. Mm. Started raining. Yeah, show was canceled. Uh, probably about thirty minutes into the show, and so they send everybody home. Uh, we're walking back in the rain, in the mud. People are angry. People are intoxicated, and fights started happening. And when I was a young kid, I was a fan of fighting. 
I really liked it. I thought I was a tough guy. And so we were in this big group of thing, and all of a sudden, punches are thrown. And so me and my buddies were like, yeah, let's go. And so we start doing it, and we start fighting. And then out of the blue. Did so, you know who you were fighting? No. Nope. Okay. No. Nope. Right, yeah. So, and I don't even think we started the fight. Probably not. I think they just did. joined in. Yeah. And out of the blue, someone steps in from the right. Right in the side of the jaw. Ooh, that drops me. That's got to hurt. Yeah. And uh, my, maybe you don't remember. I don't remember. Yeah. I remember waking up in the car on the drive home and people going, you got knocked out. <laughs> you know? it, it wasn't pretty. Um, I no, t- at least they didn't leave you there. And I tell you the story. And then the second time I got knocked out, I got jumped by seven guys mm-hmm. and got a beer bottle thrown at my head. Uh, had my jaw wired shut. Uh, my jaw was broken in three places. I've heard that one. I've heard and that so was the one I thought. Those are the two times I've been knocked out. Yep. I tell you the story and I lead with Steve Miller Band because two nights ago, I got a chance to go see Steve Miller Band again. Nice. And uh, same where, songs. Where did they, was it USANA? State Fair. State Fair. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, same songs. But this was one of the first concerts that I've been back to where I was completely sober. Right. And it was amazing to actually sit there and watch the show, enjoy the music. I think back to my days at radio and being young and going to all these concerts, to these musicians and these bands who I love. And if you know me, you know music is my life. And I would go to these shows and not... And just for the listeners to know, you were often coordinating and hanging out with the band, like what they were doing, because you worked for the radio stations. Yeah, we've talked about it. Midnight Oil kicked me out of their room because I drank all their beer. Yeah. You know, I'd hung out with Counting Crows, NXS, uh, Howard Jones, uh, I mean, Dave Matthews Band. You know, know, we got to meet uh, Coldplay, and a lot of these guys would come in the studio, and then they'd give us tickets to go to the show. But I was so interested in getting drunk instead of going there and listening to them perform and listening to their art, listening to their music. And so it's so kind of cool to so three, you, re, you know you were there, but you don't remember the experience. Yeah, because I got the T-shirt. Yeah. You know, the T-shirt said I was there. Mm-hmm. But I don't remember the experience. And, and I remember my dad sent me down one time. He's like, isn't it weird, son? And I go, what? And he goes, you love music. Your world revolves around music. And any chance you get a, to go see your idols, you don't remember it. Ah, uh, Wise. You know, he goes, he goes, I don't get it. And, 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 and to be honest, I, didn't, I don't get it either. I don't know why I did that. I just, I would get so caught up in the culture and doing that and that, that I, I would miss mm-hmm. the tree for the forest. Well, unfortunately, you know, drugs and alcohol are associated with having a good time. Uh-huh. Going to a concert's a good time. And then if you're somebody who, who uh, struggles with addiction, then you, one is never enough. And so by the time the show starts, you're, you're, gone me and the lovely leslie were sitting in our seats and we were watching as the night unfolds and there was people there that were there for the music there were there people there for just the party and yeah. just just to sit back and people watch i mean it was just as fun to people watch as it was to watch steve miller band oh i'm sure and it, i mean it was <laughs> the state fair yeah it was pretty so, cool yeah. and here's the other thing about the state fair yeah they do a right state fair is awesome i love it the concert starts at 7 30 yeah ends at nine there you go. I think all musicians should start at 7.30 and end at 9. It was perfect. I was in home bed by 9.30. I watched the 10 o'clock news, and I got up and went to work. And I was like, I wouldn't have been able to do that. Or I would have been hungover, right. not giving you my best. And it was just, but it was it was kind of one of those cool moments after celebrating my five years in sobriety, being able to go out and do that. And you got, you got what we call in my household a do-over. 
Yes. You got a do-over, and this time you got to enjoy Steve Miller. So that's In awesome. golf, we call it a mulligan. A mulligan, yeah. I got a go. mulligan, yeah. and I went there, and it landed in the fairway, and I was like, this is the one I'm going to play. Yeah. This is good, man. Good for you. That's awesome. And what a great show. Um, I've seen Steve Miller before, and yeah. it's a lot of fun. It was, it, so it was cool. So I guess uh, to, to sum up my part of the beginning of the podcast, thank you for your support. Thank you for letting me tell my stories, and thank you for just always being there because it truly does the mean the world to me. Because when I was out at the concert and I was out all last week, I had people coming up and talking about Steve, congratulating me on five years of sobriety, and then just wondering what my thoughts on the world of recovery is. And uh, it, 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 the community we have is beautiful. It is a, it's amazing, and I'm so glad that we're here five years later doing this. It's crazy, right? Because when I showed up at KSL one early morning and asked, where's Casey? And they're like pointing at the TVs. There's, <laughs> there's mug your mugshot. And I, oh, I worried about you, man. Yeah, and then I was in detox and rehab, and now here we are. Yeah, five years later. So you got a mental health minute for us, and uh, you kind of have a smirk on your face when you're going to tell me about this because – you like to push buttons. Uh, oh, me? Yeah. I'm a lover, not a fighter. No, you're I the fighter. It. But you're a guy that's a numbers guy. And yeah. you're a research guy. And right. you will wait until the research comes out to figure out whether it's helping or not. Sure. I think uh, everybody can have an opinion. That's fine. But if we want to know how things really are, we want to look at good research. You know, what I've heard about opinions are is everybody wants you to have their opinion coming out of their mouth. Okay, I thought you were going to say something else. That's no. good. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, everybody, if you say what they their opinion is, they agree with you and they think you're brilliant. Yeah. The minute that you have a different opinion, they think you're a moron. And I think that's what's kind of going on in the world right now. Absolutely, which is really too bad because if everybody could step back and just look at well, what research is happening. Mm-hmm. For example, when I was a kid, um, there, marijuana was illegal all over the United States and there was a war on drugs, right? And it was the kingpin. I mean, that's, was, that was yeah. the gateway drug. That was the thing that we were watching TV as kids that, uh, you know, yeah. reefer madness. And uh, this was the downfall of society and humanity. And this was, this was, this is where the world's going to go wrong if we do this drug. Absolutely. And now in our lifetime, it's kind of done a 180. And there's, there are places, uh, medical marijuana, cannabis, and consequently now there can be research on it, real research instead of just opinions. Some people say, have always said it's good for you. Some people have always said it's bad and terrible for you. And isn't it cool that we can have some research and we're learning about it? So I, I would say we can take the emotion out and just try to learn what what is the research showing us. And I do like to bring it up on the show when there's a good research article on it because it is very relevant uh, in our lives right now, uh, I talk to teenagers every day in therapy, and I can tell you that every teenager will agree it's very, very easy to get weed. Oh, yeah. Much easier than getting a beer. Uh-huh. Because beer is controlled and weed is not. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you've got to have a driver's license and you've got to be able to do that. Yeah. Weed is being sold on the yeah, corners. You can buy it easily and cheaply everywhere all over the state of Utah. Um, but there are also now becoming, you know, cannabis uh, dispensaries. We have some in Utah as well. I think well. we have six. Do we have six? Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and so we should know about it. And so I think it's informative to read the research as it comes out, because like anything, there's going to be some positives and some negatives, right? As for me and the stand on marijuana, mm-hmm. I think it's helpful to many out there. I think it's detrimental to many out there. Mm-hmm. And I think it serves its purpose if it's used for the right reasons. I think people are giving it a blanket uh, cure-all 
for just about everything out there. And I think that's wrong. Uh, yeah, nothing nothing is, uh, is a panacea. Nothing's a cure-all, right? So what is the research saying? Well, this, this, this is an interesting study because there has been an increasing uh, body of research on the connection between psychosis, mm-hmm. seeing and hearing things that aren't really there. Those are the primary symptoms of schizophrenia mm-hmm. and uh, THC. THC is a psychoactive chemical that you, that's what gets you high when you're smoking marijuana, right? Now, do you think that this research is coming out stronger now because the strains of marijuana is getting stronger? That's a valid question. Uh, the, the the marijuana that you buy now isn't what they sold in the 70s because it has been refined through a growing process and over time. So, yeah, that could be and likely is part of it. But this is an interesting study because it does look at uh, over 6 million individuals uh, and there are what we would call chronic marijuana use uh, individuals or they, uh, cannabis use disorder is what they qualify for. So that means they are generally smoking every day. Okay. And so if you're an individual listening and you smoke every day, you would qualify for this study. All right. right? And what they found in this study is that there's a high link between uh, especially men – Women are included in the study. 51% of the the study were male, uh, but a higher link between males and schizophrenia. And there's there's this idea that if you can take out something, then you might decrease the the rates of something. So, for example, when we talk in the addiction research, if you remove certain things, whether it's a behavior or a substance, then we can reduce the amount of addiction. And so a lot of studies use that model okay. saying when we when we take something out, then how does it affect the rest of what we're looking at? So, Variables. So these people that there were 45,000 people with schizophrenia, what they found was that in uh, 25 to 30 percent of the males, if cannabis use disorder was removed, the schizophrenia or the psychotic symptoms went away. Really? Now think about how many people that is. 45,000 people in the study, 25 to 30% of them would no longer have psychosis if they stopped chronic use of marijuana. Wow. That's not a small thing. No. And it does show a direct connection between now, there are lots more studies that need to happen and I'm not saying any study is the end all be all. Most People who don't look at research as often as somebody in my field does, doesn't realize that other people are now replicating this study. And if other people, if 10 other people came came out and said, well, we didn't get those those reports, then we would have to discount this study. But uh, and I'll let you know if that happens. But the interesting thing to me is that we we have assumed in the past the people that are at risk for psychosis, if they smoke marijuana regularly, are at much higher risk for developing schizophrenia, which is a more severe version of that. And what we're seeing here is a study that shows it in reverse uh, also proves that. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. And so, so the numbers don't lie, or at least they tell us a different story right and now. And this is, you know, these are real studies. This isn't, you know, the guy on Facebook telling you his opinion. <clears throat> and once again, but I- uh, this is a psychological medicine pu- published this year. Uh, it's a, you know, peer reviewed double blind study and shows that uh, THC has an influence on psychosis. Now, the interesting part of this story for me and for this podcast, a podcast about being a, uh, addiction and recovery is that today's youth has a lot more access to marijuana than ever before. Absolutely. More so than alcohol. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, and the problem is that um, misinformation is being spread by people that children and teens typically trust, like teachers and parents. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you, unfortunately, there are a lot of teachers and parents in our community that like to use marijuana for themselves, and maybe they do receive some benefit from using it that that would be worth getting a medical marijuana card for. But the way they talk about it is as if it's a panacea, as if it's natural and it's okay. You know, opium's natural too, but I think we know the problems with that. So the reality is that people are absorbing misinformation and treating it as if it is true, 100%. So the average teenager that you talk to today will probably tell you marijuana is not a big deal. It helps my anxiety. It's good for you. It's natural. There aren't any problems. Well, guess what? If you happen to be somebody who has a tendency towards major depression or any type of psychosis and you become a chronic marijuana user, you're increasing dramatically the probability of developing schizophrenia. I remember six years ago, or I I don't know the exact years ago, but I was in uh, California. And this is just when people first got their medical card. Mm. And I remember driving in a taxi and talking to the taxi driver. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about how he got his medical card. And I was like, well, how did you get your medical card? He goes, well, I went and saw a doctor. And I go, what did he ask you? And he goes, well, what is your pain? He goes, well, I got a bad back. I can't sleep and I'm anxious. And he goes, well, here's your medical card. I go, that's life. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? You I was going to say that. Most everybody's walking around. I'm 51. Around. I think <laughs> yeah. I hit all those. Yeah. You know? And so, but it was like, okay. I mean, I, yeah. look, I, I'm not discounting The problem it. is, though, that, that uh, we are still catching up on the research for this. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of those reasons is because it was illegal for so long, we weren't allowed to have widespread study of it. Now we can study it much more freely and openly and understand what it does. And a lot of those things that they're prescribing it for, it is a very temporary relief. You know what else and we're just catching up on the research on? problems. What's that? Opioids. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? When that first came out, it was the cure-all for everything. Right. And look where that landed us. So I I would say walk into whatever you were walking into gingerly. Yeah. You know, and Well, when it comes to medications, less is more. If you don't need it, don't take it. If you can use other things like mindfulness and meditation to get a better result, which, by the way, the research does show for pain management that long-term you do better with mindfulness and meditation than you do with marijuana or opioids. I love it. Um, so anyway, pay attention to the research. Let let the information guide you. Don't be so emotional and 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 uh, let your feelings always guide you. Sometimes the numbers are much more helpful. I love it. Hey, our guest today is a wonderful young lady. Her name is Hillary Hefkin. Did I get that right? Haley. Dang it. <laughs> I thought I had it. That was good. But it started it with close. an H. That was, yeah, you're so but I think for you, that's pretty good. Yeah. You did great. I've got 90% yeah. of it. You pronounced the last name right. Which then is that was what that I was really worried about. And here's the interesting thing about Hillary. Haley. Yep. <laughs> Haley, uh, are you an active uh, recovery? I'm not. Are you an addict? I'm not. Um, but you're here to share a story. And uh, your story's got heart. It's got meaning. And uh, hopefully it's got some research behind it for Dr. Matt. We're going to hear, <laughs> hear her story coming up next right here on Project Recovery. Hey, we can't talk about my sorry. looks. Okay, Let's sorry. talk about Haley Hefkin, uh, who's our guest today on the podcast. And as we learned in the first segment, uh, she's not an addict. She's not in recovery. And she's not named Hillary. And no. And uh, <laughs> But she does have a story to tell. And where does the story of Haley begin? In a small little town called Augusta, Kansas. Mm-hmm. 
population 9,000. I went to graduate school in Kansas in Wichita. Really? Yeah. So it's just outside of there, like I've, 30 I, minutes. I, I remember hearing about it. I don't think I ever went there, but yeah. Not yeah. a lot out there to yeah. do. Um, what did you do? Um, well, my parents had me when they were pretty young. So growing up, I had a split family home, which was kind of tough, but not a lot out there to do besides drugs and alcohol. So by the time I got into high school, I started experimenting and it just really started to affect my self-image and the way I saw myself. Let me ask you a question. Did you first try drugs and alcohol out of boredom or did you feel like, because we've had people here on the podcast say that they they just felt something was missing and uh, they couldn't understand it. But we've also had people on the podcast who simply had their first drink out of curiosity and boredom. I think at first it came from just pure curiosity as any normal teenage kid does. But it reached a point where there's, like, nothing else to do in Kansas besides go drink with your friends. And it was the people that I was surrounding myself with and hanging out with that were continuing to influence me in these habits. Let me ask you this, because I think a lot of times when they say, well, that's what every kid was doing. Well, the truth is not every kid was doing that. That, Yeah, not everybody. You know, uh, so, I mean, was there a group of kids in your high school that weren't participating in drugs and alcohol? Or did it seem like a lot of people were doing that? It felt like a lot were, but absolutely there were kids that were not, and all power to them. Yeah. And so when all of a sudden you were like, did you start to like it? Did it do something different for you? Um, it just kind of took away from the day, normal day-to-day, and it just made me feel like, I don't know, a little less whole at the end, I guess. So then I kept chasing it. It started off mostly with weed. Um, You know, you smoke and it's great and you're happy and you're giggling with your friends. And then it's just like a snowball effect and it just kept snowballing for me. And I just couldn't get a grasp on it at the time. They call that chasing the dragon. Is that what they call it? Yeah, because you're you're, you're continually searching for that original high. You know, the one that took away all the pain, took away all the anxiety, made you feel whole, made you feel fun. And it is a chase because your body quickly habituates and you never quite get back to that original, do you? So you said it started to leave you holy at the end. Mm-hmm. Holy? Yeah. Not like 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 spiritual holy, but like, <laughs> like filled less with hole holes. on the inside. Filled, filled with holes. Yeah. Ah, empty perhaps? Sure. Yes. Okay. I liked I liked holy. I yeah. just thought I missed part of the conversation. No. All right. Yeah, so I just lost interest in school sports. I my senior year was kicked off the softball team for drinking, going to parties. Um, really lost interest in school by my freshman year of college. I lost someone very close to me to suicide, and it all just kind of spiraled. I did never get out of bed. I started failing all my classes. I developed an eating disorder, and it got to the point where I didn't even want to be alive and attempted. And I'm thankful today that I had the people around me to help me through that. But at the time, I was so addicted to the way that I was feeling And I thought that the only way to cope with it was by doing drugs and alcohol because it was all I had seen at the time. I want to stop you right there because you said something that's very interesting to me. She was addicted to that feeling, Mm -hmm. uh, that feeling of being lost, being desperate, and and all that. Is that a a feeling that a lot of people have, Dr. Matt? Were you saying, Haley, that you were addicted to the bad feelings you were having? Yeah, yeah. it almost felt uncomfortable for me to be in a happy situation. And I found myself isolating from that. Yeah, so uh, I have this conversation 
fairly regularly with people who are struggling with depression and it's confusing to the person, but it, it almost feels good to feel bad. Right. And so that spiraling downward is kind of a negative indulgence that feels enticing or in a way good to the person. And I think one thing I don't want to miss out on your story here is you're talking about developing those patterns in your developmental years. Mm -hmm. So by the time you get to college, you probably don't really remember spending much of your life because it was when you were a child that you didn't use drugs and alcohol and you weren't always chasing that feeling and you weren't feeling sort of, uh, you know, empty inside like you're describing. So it probably felt normal or we get used to though. We get used to our anxieties. We get used to our depression. We get used to believe it or not, things like feeling sick in the morning and having hangovers and, and feeling depressed starts to feel kind of like our norm. Right. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, and I had never, learned how to deal with feelings of anxiety and depression in a healthy way. So I was just reverting to the same coping. What you know, right? Yeah. And it was just making it so much worse for me in the end. So you said in your first years of college, um, you lost someone close to you to suicide. Yes. You developed an eating disorder. Yes. And I think you said you even were contemplating suicide yourself. Yeah. And how did that uh, come about? Um. I had just isolated myself to the point where I wasn't even getting out of bed. I wasn't eating, wasn't taking care of myself. It felt like I was spending days on end just crying. And I was so tired of feeling that way. And I felt like there was nothing that I could do to make it better. Like, this is the way that I was just going to feel forever. And it was going to be like this. And to me, those feelings of sadness and grief were so overwhelming that I took two pills to try and just end it. And I realized immediately after doing it that that is not what I wanted. And I'm so grateful and thankful now that, you know, I feel sometimes that you have to put yourself, well, not that you have to, but you get to that point and you hit that rock bottom and you're like, oh my God, what am I doing here? And that was kind of that point for me where I realized I want to start taking more control of my life. And so what does that look like? How do you go from probably one of the, your, as you said, your rock bottom or darkest parts of your life to, oh, I've got to figure out how to get through this. Let's pause for a second, I just because I want to talk about suicide and suicidal thinking for a second. Um, and and maybe you can tell me if this was your experience or not. But one of the things that people don't talk enough about is having suicidal thoughts. In your case, it progressed to an attempt. Um but it usually starts with feeling hopeless, hopeless that things can change. Um, human beings, we have a natural tendency to feel good. We want to feel good. Now, often we do things in an attempt to feel good that make us feel bad. But that's still, yeah, that's still our goal is to feel good. And so we will try everything in our power to alleviate pain and discomfort and to feel better, to escape. But when a person has tried everything, and they start to feel hopeless that things can ever get better, then the ultimate escape is not being, right? And so not being means I'm not here anymore, and people start to think about suicide. Did that kind of ring true for you? Yeah, absolutely. I felt like I had been so sad for so long, and it was anxiety that had been built up from my childhood that I had never really dealt with. And it, yeah, it just kind of snowballed to a point where it felt too heavy for me to carry anymore. And I was like, why? Am I carrying this weight from 
20 years ago on my back and letting it affect me in this way. So who at this time, so you're in college, it sounds like, yeah. at the time. Mm-hmm. Where were you going to school? Uh, KU. So KU. University of Kansas. Oh, that's where I did my postdoc. Okay. Yeah. Wow, rock chalk. Yeah. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but yeah, rock chalk. That's right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, and so you're up there in Lawrence. Yes. Yep. And uh, who were your support systems in your life at that time? Um, at first it was my roommates, but because of my depression, I kind of lost my relationship with them. And I lost a relationship with a lot of my friends. It was hard to maintain friendships. I mean, you didn't want to get out of bed and People don't really want to be friends with somebody who doesn't want to get out of bed. So I relied a lot on my family, and it got to the point where my friends came to me, and they were like, we're worried about you, and we're here for you. And I realized at that point that people who really did matter in my life continued to show up for me. Okay. Did you Were you aware of mental health, like depression or anxiety, running in your family? Did Is that a conversation you ever had? Um, anxiety runs in my family and I had known that on my dad's side, my family is mostly medicated for anxiety, but it wasn't something that I was ready to explore for myself at the time. I don't know if it was just like an ego thing or a pride thing. I just didn't feel like I needed it and I just wanted to take it on like tough girl. Just be tough. Was there any resources available at the university? Did you go talk to counselors? Did you go see hospitals? Did you, did you, did you search down that path anyway? Or were you just going to white knuckle it? No, I was just going to white knuckle it. And I should have, like, I was just so in my head at the time. Like it feels that there's nothing out there for you when there is, even if it's just right outside your bedroom door with your roommates. A lot of people don't know that. uh, And I don't know where the cutoff is, but Colleges and universities of a certain size are required to have mental health counseling services available because in the past so many kids were isolated and having problems with mental health in like a dormitory situation. They're away from family. And so KU definitely and and like the University of Utah and all major schools have those resources. But I think what you're saying is really important is that – and I think – the old guys like us are definitely susceptible to it, but trying just to be tough, right? And not say, well, I, everyone in the family has medication for anxiety, but, but I don't need to, right? I don't want, you know, and not understanding why it runs in families and, and how helpful and actually how, how courageous it is to reach out and ask for some help to let people know that we're struggling is hard. And when you're young, you, you don't want to believe that you have any anything that needs help, right? Exactly. Yeah. So the white knuckle journey begins. How does that go for you at first? Oh, poorly. It, it's just a detrimental effect on my mental health. Continues to make everything worse. And the things that I was using to kind of fill those gaps, obviously, were just falling through. Um, got me to the point where I hit my low. And I decided that I needed to pick myself back up. Obviously, it's a little bit harder when you don't have the crutches that you need. So, yeah, I slipped and fell a ton. You know, I got an MIC and an MIP within months of each other. I MIP is minor in possession. MIC, minor in consumption? Yes. I had a couple. Well done. Yes. Yeah. I thought she was talking about knee injuries for no, a minute. No, no, no. MCL. Yeah, that's, I figured that, yeah. Um, but, yeah, my life just kind of started to crumble and were you using other things besides uh weed and alcohol at the time um adderall Mm -hmm. to get through the days the classic college drug of exactly abuse choice yeah 
And it still just like wasn't even helping. I was so just mentally and physically exhausted that getting out of bed seemed like the hardest task in the world. And in turn, my school life suffered. Did you have uh, college friends that were – so you you were really abusing drugs and alcohol in an attempt to self-medicate. Did, did you relate to anybody? Did you have any friends that were kind of doing the same thing? Um, I feel like in college, a lot of my friends were heavily drinking or heavily smoking or, you know, binging. Yeah. And so it made my actions more excusable in my eyes at the time when now looking back on it, they're not. It you felt know, more normal just because exactly. that's – Yeah. Binging is kind of the college habit, right? Exactly. Yeah. So you said through the next little while, you fell, you got up, you fell, you got up, you fell, and you got up. Eventually, you're going to have to turn a corner. What does that corner look like? So that corner for me kind of started when I moved to Los Angeles in 2019. I got there. Did you graduate college? I did not. So I ended up dropping out of KU pre-med, and I just wanted to take a break, kind of focus on my mental health. It just wasn't right for me at the time. Um, So I got the opportunity to move out to LA. This would have been in 2020, actually. Um, I got there about a week or two before the pandemic. was super excited. The world shut down, you know? World shut down, all except one industry. (laughs) Marijuana. Marijuana. Yeah, it kind of took off. Yeah, that and golf clubs. (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So um, I started working in social media for a cannabis company and just being in that environment I obviously led to me smoking a lot more and just not really doing a lot with my life back in kind of depression. And I got really caught up in the L.A. lifestyle of like going to the clubs and being in that scene. And for me, my turnaround moment really didn't come until I lost one of my friends during the pandemic to an opioid overdose. Mm. So that kind of hit me really hard because he was younger than me and he had been in my life for years and years and years. It's kind of a reality check for me, even though I wasn't using opioids. Like, you want to make the most of the life that you have. Mm-hmm. And so I went home and I spent some time regrounding and trying to figure out how can I cope with these feelings in a healthy way, not using weed to cover up my anxiety or alcohol to cover up my depression. And well, I got to stop you there because I think a lot of people at home who might be in a similar situation as you would wonder how you would do that. I mean, it's easy to say to ground myself and, and, and kind of point out, you know, your your crutches and what's going to help you through the day. But just talking about it, it's usually not enough. What did you do to kind of to ground yourself and, and help you through your anxiety? Moving home for me was number one, spending time around my family and the people that I loved, my friends letting them know how I was feeling, really opening them up to my story and things that I have experienced that I had been bottling up for years before this. And for me, it just really came from therapy, getting medication that was actually needed for my anxiety and depression, Um, mindfulness, meditation, spending time outside, and just really changing the way that I saw myself and positive self-talk was huge for me. How hard was it... um to take that first step in telling, you know, telling people you were struggling. It was really hard. I mean, it took me years and still it is hard. I mean, it just, anxiety and depression, it doesn't just go away. Even though I know how to handle it better now, it still affects me. And sometimes I still have to go up to the people I care about and be like, look, I am really struggling right now. And like, I need you to be here for me. But I never regret doing that. 
because at the end of the day, I always feel better after. Yeah. I mean, (sighs) if you think about it, when we do that, it's hard for us, but we're giving the people that love us an opportunity to support us for real, right? right? If we hold back and we don't tell people how we're really struggling, then what can they do for us, right? And sometimes people will struggle with that in their own mind. They they feel resentful. Nobody helps me. And sometimes in therapy, we ask the hard question, but do you let anybody know just exactly how much you're struggling and what you're struggling with? Because we the, the, most people do have people who will go the extra mile time and time again to help us. You know how many people uh, in the last two years of my active addiction, when I was just spiraling completely out of control, they would come up to me, uh, you, uh, the TV station I work for, my mother, my ex-wife, my friends, they'd all come up to me and be like, hey, how are you doing? And I'd be fine. I'm doing, I'm doing fine. Yeah. And they'd be like, are, are you? you? <laughs> and I'd be like, yeah, I'm doing fine. And so at that point, I'm stopping the conversation. They, you know, they know I'm not doing fine, but I'm not willing to admit that I'm hurting, that I'm spiraling out of control and I can't stop it. So well, then what can we I do? can be personal on this since yeah. you brought me into it. Sure. Um, you don't, I didn't know exactly how bad it was. Yeah. And what kind of friend am I if I'm like, oh, you're, you've got major problems and I, I call you out. You know, maybe that is the right thing to do, but maybe it's not. So a person in my position, I was like, well, I know Casey's struggling. Yeah. And we're talking about it a little bit. And I know you're giving me 10% of the story. Sure. And trying to pretend that's 100% of the story. But how far do I go to push it? And so I do think that people in the supportive role have... um, have an obligation to to ask and offer support, but the person who's struggling also has to come clean at some point, right? Well, I mean, we because talking- even people that are close friends and family, we don't always know exactly how bad it is. We talk about it in therapy. Uh, you know, when you're going to see your therapist, and 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 I always say. Whatever you do, be as honest as you can Gotta because be. then they have all the information to work with. Right. If you're only giving them 10% of the information, they can't give you all the help. So I, earlier this week, had a conversation with a person who I've seen for several years in therapy, and they finally said, there are three things I haven't ever told you, and I feel like I have to tell you. And I was like, yeah, maybe about four years ago you should have told me that. Now, everything in its time you know, and, I and, get that. and that person wasn't ready to deal with those things. But now that it's out in the open, man, therapy's taking off. We well, had a great session this week. But we've also talked about in recovery that uh, an addict or somebody in recovery sometimes can be only be as honest as they can be at that yeah. point. No, I, I get because, that. Because it's, you know, it's a process, it, it's right? It's a process. It's in the time and I'm working it out and I'm trying to figure it well, out. Push your process. Yeah, push your process. you listening to this story. Listen to what Haley did, and even if it takes years, you got to get out there. And I think when you were asking, and then you answered it, you were like, "Well, what did you do? How did how do you ground yourself?" And you said it. The first thing was she changed her environment. Yeah, she she left an environment. I don't know if people are familiar with L.A., but it's not always the most mentally healthy no. city in the uh. world, right? Just saying. Um, but she she changed her environment, and then she opened up so that people, friends, and family could support. Well, her. and when you were telling your story, Haley. Um, it's not my place to put labels on anyone. And you came in and said that you're not an addict, and I don't believe you're an addict. But what you did is you stopped 
way before you could have been an addict. And and I wish people who listen to the podcast could do the same thing. Because basically what you described by going home, getting a therapist, supporting yourself with uh, people who support you, that's recovery. Oh, it is. That, you know, that's yeah. that's a treatment center. Yeah. It was your family. It was your own neighborhood. But that's a treatment center. And that stopped you from going down the road to where who knows where it could have ended. Yeah, exactly. Especially in the environment in L.A. Because there are so many opportunities to go down. And, and there are not a lot of people that are going to tell you to put the brakes on. Exactly. They want to party. One thing to think about is this. And I think actually Haley's story, and I want to hear more about it, but I think her story is more relevant to to our average listener than to somebody who has had a big addiction for many many years because we talk about there's use and then above that is abuse Mm -hmm. then above that is dependency Mm -hmm. and then at the top is addiction and some of the theory is that maybe that addiction piece is really depends on your genetics and the 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 major destruction in life happens in the dependency stage addiction is when we try to stop and we can't we have withdrawal symptoms and and our body is pulling us back into using but dependency even if you're not experiencing those withdrawal symptoms dependency is where your life goes right down the toilet right Mm -hmm. because you're dependent on your substance of your doc that becomes your major crutch your major fix to get you through the day yeah I'm dependent upon this to get through I have through to day. have this in order to feel better. And then it goes to abuse where you're no longer using it to depend on the day that you're abusing it. Well, we would say abuse happens and then you abuse it so long that you become dependent. Yeah. That's how that goes. Okay. But it's all good. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. But you went home, you grounded yourself, you surrounded yourself with great people, and you started to get yourself back up. Uh, and then where did you go from there? So I went back out to L.A. Sure. for a little oh, bit. Makes sense. <laughs> Round two. Yeah. Um, but this time with a much different mindset, and I focused more on making myself happy and doing things for myself. I got a great job, and you know I stayed in touch with my therapist, and I really did things that were working for me. Um, at the end of the day, after trying it again, it wasn't the place for me, and I decided that I needed to be somewhere that – I could be surrounded with like-minded people. And so I found myself here in Utah, Salt Lake City. What brought you here? Uh, My dear boyfriend, who I love. (laughs) And he lives here in Utah? He is currently in Colorado. He is out playing baseball for Colorado Mesa. So I see him sometimes, but... (laughs) Uh, Okay, no, that's pretty cool. She's dating a baseball player. Yeah, Yeah. rock chalk. Yeah. (laughs) That's for Kansas, but oh, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I was just yeah. throwing out sports terms. And so you find yourself <laughs> looking for a job here, and then all of a sudden you end up at Fit to Recover. Yeah, so I had heard a bit about it, um, and I went in to do a tour. I knew that they were looking for somebody with a marketing background, and I was just absolutely blown away by all of the services and everybody there. Um, I cried my first day walking in. I mean, they if you go into Fit to Recover, if you have been in there – Everybody is so happy to just see you, and they are so kind and welcoming, and everything that they're doing there, it's an amazing mission. I mean, there's so he, people... Here's what I want to do. Let's do a little uh, experience here. So you call back home to Kansas mm-hmm. and tell the family you got a job at Fit to Recover. Yes. And their question is, what is Fit to Recover? Okay. What do you tell them? I tell them that it is a safe space to help people that are recovering from addiction through fitness and creativity and nutrition and just community in general. It's pretty cool. Yeah. I love I love 
their program, and I love referring people to their program because of exactly what Haley's talking about. It, it's a culture of positivity. Community. And community that uh, services, a lot of places offer great services, but you walk in and you just don't feel it. And I think Fit to Recover is a great example of a place with positivity. The amazing thing about them is that they walk the walk and they talk the talk. Rock and, shock. Yeah, rock <laughs> shock. No. And if you go in there, uh, they will take care of you. Uh, they will scholarship you. They just want what's best for you and however that looks. So now they've got two locations. they got one in Utah County, one in Salt Lake. And you're tasked with getting them out in the community and being a part of the community. Yeah, Absolutely. And so what kind of things are you doing for Fit to Recover? Um, so this last weekend, we just had our recovery days, which we had tons of booths um, from all over with recovery-related. Support centers. Yes, support centers. Um, we had food trucks, games, face painting. It was a really great time. And we're actually going to be doing that this weekend down in Utah County for their recovery days. Um, at the end of the month, we're doing a huge art market on September 30th. So we're inviting all local artists and all of our members are going to be creating art that's going to be for sale. Um, some of our artists are going to be performing live, which is awesome. We're going to have our 789 food truck there, which they provide healthy and nutritious meals at a relatively low price for our community, which is great. Um, yeah, and we're just looking and getting the word out. We want to start spreading FTR as far as we can. I love it. And I love everything that you guys stand for. Before we wrap this podcast up, uh, I'm very impressed with your story. And I think Dr. Matt is 100% correct when saying that I think her story is going to resonate more with our listeners than some of the more extreme stories that we share on a weekly basis here on this podcast. Yeah, I, I appreciate Everybody who's willing to take their time, come on the show. I think it's very helpful to hear all different types of stories. But if you work in, so I, I you know, I've been doing this show with you for a while now, mm -hmm. and people will ask me, oh, do you specialize in addictions? And I say no, and then they look confused. Um, and, but what I follow up with is if you work with people on any sort of close basis, any sort of intimacy in the work that you do, whether you're a teacher or some kind of doctor, therapist, whoever, you are going to be working with people who are struggling with substances, substance abuse at the very least, probably dependency and maybe addiction. Obviously, at some point, people need to go work with a specialist. And I do send people uh, off to work with specialists when I realize that this isn't just a smallish problem for them. But the reason I bring that up is so many people in our community are in denial about where they're at on that continuum from use, abuse, dependency, and addiction. And a lot of the stories that come on our show are people that have overcome the addiction, the, the highest level. Mm -hmm. But the majority of people are in the middle and they're abusing substances or they've become dependent on you know their glass of wine before they go to bed or their beers after work and they don't really realize the effect that it's having on their life and then it, what i really appreciate about haley talking about is the mental health aspect that a lot of the times what differentiates between a person in college that can party on the weekends and get good grades during the week not that i recommend that especially if my kids are listening but um what i what they don't realize is that when you add mental health and you start self-medicating, then it becomes this whole other 
beast uh, problem to deal with. And so I, I love the fact that you're modeling how helpful something like therapy can be and being honest with friends and family and giving them an opportunity to support us. Um, I think that's hard for me, actually. Uh, you know, I'm 51, almost 52, you know, kind of old school. And it's hard to admit when we have struggles. But if we don't talk about them, they don't get better. Right. And if we don't allow people to know how we're doing, they can't offer us real support and therapy. I love the fact that you moved out to L.A. but stayed in touch with your therapist back in Kansas. And having those kinds of therapeutic relationships are so helpful to not just helping us manage substances in our life, but the mental health part of of life. And when we get that under control, and like you said, maybe we always are going to have some depression and anxiety, right? Um, I think to some degree that's human to have some depression and anxiety, Mm -hmm. but understanding it, accepting it, working with it, having treatments, whether they're more on the mindfulness meditation, on the traditional therapy or the medication, all of those things helping us live our best life. I, I think Haley's a perfect example of how that works. And and I, too, agree that I think the mental health aspect of Haley's story is probably the key point to this. Because there are so many people who have been on this podcast or who are in active addiction or in recovery that got to that addiction through mental health. And it being there being anxiety, depression, whatever it is, they were self-medicating. They didn't want to have open conversations. They thought they were the only one. And if we don't have these open conversations, then we don't know how to help. So I do think that's an important part of this is being honest with with ourselves, with our loved ones, and our support group. And then hopefully through that, we can find better tools and resources that will help us better understand our anxiety and our depression. Because I do think that some of that is I mean, not like the heavy depression, but some of it is just everyday life. And, and, yeah. and, 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 and we've got to figure out better ways to deal with it rather than substance. Yeah, absolutely. So if people want more information, Haley, about Fit to Recover, uh, where do they go? You can email me at Haley at FitToRecover.org. You can look us up on socials. We have FitToRecover.org, our website. Um, you can give us a call anytime or if you're really feeling lucky, come down and check us out. We have classes all day, every day, every day of the week. Um, we're located at 1331 South Major Street. Now, I don't know. No, if somebody just showed up, they could you work out for free. Yeah. I'll tell Ian, yes, he'll let them. Yeah. Right? Yeah, everybody's Ian. first class is free. Yeah, so go down there and just check and, it out. And what if you just wanted to just kind of get a little tour? If somebody was like, well, show me what you guys do. Absolutely. I'll show you around personally. Ah, all right. <laughs> and, and, and for those who don't know, I was first introduced to Fit to Recover while I was in recovery. Right. And so I spent 45 days in recovery. And every Sunday, we would go down to Fit to Recover at their old location. And we would start uh, the workout by circling up, mm-hmm. talk about things that are going on in our lives, and get set intentions for the workout in the day. And then we'd sweat. We'd listen to 80s rap music and, and just kind of sweat it out and, and get our bodies moving and feel good. And at the end, we'd all circle back up again, and we would talk about gratitude and what we're thankful for. And uh, it was a just, awesome. It That's was a, wonderful. It was an amazing time, and I've always loved that. And, and it was very crucial to my recovery because you know, physical exercise is really important to me. And so I love it, and I love everything they stand for. Yeah, and they hold you accountable. If they don't. If you don't show up, they will call you out. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty cool. I'll tell you what. So one thing that's on my mind right now is uh, I remember when I first started in graduate school in psychology, and I wasn't actually interested in doing therapy. I was more interested in the neuroscience aspects of it. 
But you get all the classes, right? Yeah. And every time we had somebody that was like uh, addiction therapist, I just felt like they were kind of mean, you know, like like grouchy and negative. Now, I look back on it and I realize that because of what you're treating, you have to be very confrontational. Uh-huh. And I'm not necessarily a very confrontational person. So I, I always that was that was the negative spin in my mind on 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 addiction treatment. So I never wanted to do it. Okay. It hasn't been honestly until and so I did all my other stuff and very busy with mental health and, and yeah. it went down the road I went down for twenty years. And it wasn't until I started doing this show that I was introduced to still yeah, very still confrontational, still direct but so many programs and people in the addiction that are so uh, recovery community that are so positive and upbeat and utilizing things like mindfulness, meditation, setting an intention, talking about gratitude, all the things that I love about mental health. And that's one of the reasons I never hesitate to refer people to uh, FTR is because I know that's what they're going to get when they go down there. And to be honest, if that had been my introduction 20 plus years, 25, 26, 27 years ago. I don't know. Maybe I'd be an addiction therapist today. Maybe you I'd know? be your co-host. Yeah. Who I, knows? I don't know. <laughs> I don't want to be an alcoholic, but you know, well, thank I'd you. still be your friend. Thank you, Dr. Matt. Thank you, Haley. Uh, it's been a wonderful time talking to you. We appreciate it. Thank you for listening to another episode of Project Recovery. And in case you forgot, Dr. Matt, Project Recovery is what? It is a KSL podcast, Casey. On the count of three, rock chalk. One, two, three. Rock Rock chalk. of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk.